3: To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, welcome to the first event to happen in the London Review Bookshop since the lockdown earlier this year. Uh, an exciting moment. I'm Edmund Gordon. I'm thrilled to be here with Andrew O'Hagan to discuss his new novel Mayflies. Andrew is one of the country's most brilliant writers of uh, both fiction and fiction and non-fiction. Many of you watching this may know him from his um, essays in the London Review of Books on subjects ranging from The Killing of James Bulger and The Fire at Grenfell Tower, through Lad Mags and uh, Susan Boyle, to Bitcoin and The Dark Web. Uh, As a novelist he's received so many accolades that we wouldn't have time to talk about much Mm -hmm. else if I listed them all. But they include the L.A. Times Book Prize for uh, Be Near Me and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize for Personality. Um, everything that Andrew writes is distinguished by his beautiful, supple style and his deep humanity. And Mayflies is his most intimate book to date. It uh, traces the friendship between Polly Dawson and the narrator Jimmy Collins. Uh, over the course of 30 years. The first half of the novel takes place when the main characters are 18 and it follows them on a a life-defining, in some ways, trip to Manchester. And then the second part takes place 30 years later when Jimmy, the narrator, receives a call from Tully uh, saying that he's been diagnosed with terminal cancer. For my money, it's the best novel about the magic of youth and the terrible speed with which it disappears to have appeared in many many years why don't we start with a reading from you
0: yeah absolutely delighted um, so hope everybody's hearing is okay i'm going to read from a part of the novel uh which is the kind of central sort of moment in that youthful journey where the boys from glasgow end up in manchester at the concert of their lives the festival of the 10th summer that's the 10th anniversary of punk rock uh, and One of the bands that they love are the Smiths and finally they appear on stage and there's a kind of moment of complete clarity for this crowd of boys. The band was at its height, romantic and wronged and fierce and sublime, with haircuts like agendas. Morrissey came brandishing a license, a whole manner of permission, as if a new kind of belonging could be made from feeling left out, like nobody knew you, like he did. Time takes nothing away from it. Those thousands of heartened teenagers taking the roof off and giving out to a gawky frontman from Stretford. Holly found me and pushed me down to the stage. Over the speakers, the sound was scratchy, but every word and every guitar lick felt like a statement only they could make. And that only we could hear. Those songs rolling from the stage to irrigate our lives. That's what it's all about. Tully shouted, and he kissed my cheek as we sang. I could see Limbo up the front, whirling out of his skin, holding up a smoke and shouting about panic on the streets of Carlisle. Then he was near us and wagging his finger in time to the music, a wonderful look on his face, singing about a vicar, about Joan of Arc, and throwing plastic tumblers into the air. Our hair was soaking wet. The Ayrshire boys appeared from all corners of the hall and we hugged and the music soared and it seemed like a huge animation of the things that mattered to us then. Tibbs and Hog, Limbo and Tully and Clogs, the full brass of being. Who knew what time incubated or what life would demonstrate? We were there, beyond navigation, floating through the air, we beamed to the rafters and jumped, shoulder to shoulder, and the words we sang were daft and romantic and ripe and British, custom-built for the clear-eyed young.
3: I think that this is the first time you've really written about the experience of being a fan, about what that's like, about what celebrity looks like from the outside. And I suppose I wonder, I mean, it seems very psychologically important to these boys, in the novel that being a fan it seems like it's the they have quite grim home lives they, yeah. they you know they're in broken homes they have sick and unemployed parents mm-hmm. um and that this is their means of escape in a way um i mean is that how that I makes perfect
0: it? sense to me you know that's really one of the core values of the novel this novel mm. is that those boys find their identity in the group mm. and they find it in relation to these famous Bands, some of whom, by the way, were only famous for about ten minutes. You know, bands like the Bodines or the X or some of the bands that I quote. I mean, I don't know about you, who's younger than me, but even people my age might say, "Who the hell are they?" I
3: have to admit to, to not <laughs> having heard of all the bands.
0: You must have heard of the Fall or the Smiths. I've heard of the
3: Fall yeah. and the Smiths. Yeah, it's um, yeah. another nostalgic element—a a time when Morrissey was someone who left-wing young people
0: could—that's right, I mean, become, who was who was bearable and yeah. more than bearable. Yeah. I mean, somebody you would have emulated. I mean. Sadly, no longer. But that's again a message about what time does. You know, the faith that those boys have is a kind of group faith in the, the their own transportability, if you like. That, as you say, they're all boys with a pretty harsh background and and real difficulties back home. Some of which they share in the novel, and that, they, that enriches their friendship in the sharing. That's part of the story. But um, you're right; fandom becomes a kind of uh, a group habit with them, and it was so like that, you know, that we felt that people who didn't like the bands we like had something wrong with them Mm. morally, Mm. you know. The fandom in a novel, in a contemporary novel like this, might be understood to work the way that romance works in George Eliot, that the currency of that, the shared experience of it, uh, the hankering for it, and ultimately the resolution of it uh, for George Eliot was the beating heart of the human problem in the novel well for for my generation uh, and and i think even more complicated complicatedly for the one after me where fame becomes a kind of because of the technology a self-producing thing mm. in mean, instagram and social media are indeed it's, they, these are platforms in which young people can seek their international personal fame and fandom simultaneously. So I've been interested in writing about those things, I think, since the beginning, as you say.
3: As well as I mean, you know, having quite difficult domestic lives, nothing much is expected of these boys. There's, uh, there's a great line early on about how the nuns teach them, prepare them for a world in which piety might be a replacement for not having basic mathematical hmm. knowledge. And yet they all do escape that world. I mean, all of the central characters in it, they to a greater or lesser extent, do more than is expected of them. we see in the second. Yeah. What is it about them, you think, that...
0: that... That's a fact, you know, that you didn't get your raison d'etre, you know, you didn't get your purpose in life from uh, the teachers necessarily, although, interestingly, Jimmy does. He has one, the famous one good teacher, mm. who pulls him over uh, the wall into a life of freedom, really. Yeah. She believes in him in a way that his parents don't know how to. But it was typical among those boys that, uh, and girls, that they shared the thing, which was that they didn't look to their elders for how a, a lesson in how to live. They invented it among themselves. And again, that's a core value in the novel. I mean, the response to the novel has been really heartening. And one of the things that people come back to me with is that we've been looking for an explanation of how clever young people in Britain made their lives, mm. And I think that they did make their lives. This was a time of Thatcherism. Those communities that these boys come from are being shattered at that moment. The miners' strike happened, you know, the year before the, the first half of the novel's events begin. And those, these boys are full of a sense that the future has been sort of damned by the political order in Britain at that time. And yet, they're so clever and so in touch with each other. And that's the important thing for me. There's a cliche about working class people in this country that persists that they're gloomy, that they're held back, that they're endlessly sort of inarticulate. You know, you hear these things said in the right-wing press. In fact, some of the cleverest people I have met in my life were uh, the young people I grew up with. They had irony, they had film references, they, they read novels, they loved their music with a, with an understanding and a sense of purpose mm. that I've scarcely met since. I mean, I don't want to idealise them. They were in some ways broken, and some of them, you know, were suffering, and the parental situation was often quite extreme. But what they did was they invented their lives, as surely in a different context as a sort of Oscar Wilde did. Mm. They made it up, and the making up of it with that brilliant soundtrack became the core material for me.
3: I that brilliantly, I mean, the, the wit and the articulacy of these young people. But, I mean, it struck me that escape is a sort of quite a prominent theme in... And- but but, yeah. but really, the escape, I mean, what we see of their later lives is in fact what the narrator calls violence and death. I mean, we don't see the glorious lives that they've escaped to. We see the things they can't escape to that come at the end of it. Yeah. And the real escape is in the present of their childhoods. It is that weekend in Manchester. It is their friendships with one another.
0: That that distance between the first half of the youthful Uh, element and then 30 years later when the call comes that the leading guy, the front man, the great friend, Tully um, has got terminal cancer. I took a risk with that and it's a technical risk and it's basically the risk is this. I wanted the reader to do all the work about their life's achievements in their own head Mm. and to find it as it were in their own understanding. When we meet the boys again 30 years later, they're fully They're fully in possession of themselves. We still hear the echoes and the language and the references and the connection to who we know they were because we've already read of them. But, no, it's a thing a novel can do that's very hard to do, say, in film, where you can just close the page, turn it, and it says 30 years later, and here they are. It's like life in that way. You can meet somebody in a train station that you haven't seen for 30 years when you're like me and you're in your early 50s. That can happen. It does happen. And... You see the traces of who they used to be in their language and on their face and in what they're talking about, Um, but you also see other things, including the inevitability that all the escape in the world didn't cause us to escape from one thing, and that is that we're all going to the same station in the end. And again, that doesn't have to be a gloomy thought. That's just a thing that novels must deal in, that they're about lives and exuberance, and you pack a novel if you can, at whatever level and in in whatever way, with life, but there must also always be what Saul Bellow called the black backing on the mirror that allows us to see anything at all, and that's death. Mm. And even in a book that was full of joy and jokes and music and belief like this, um, and it was about escape, as you rightly say, but there's no escaping ultimately from what fate might bring. And the novel tries to conjure with those problems. It's a Bolovian problem to me. Mm. You know, how do you have a full life in the midst of a certainty that death is coming. And the novel dramatises that. Mm.
3: Is that a sense that you talk about that people endure, that they remain as as old people, the people they were in their youth in some sense, even if a diluted version? I mean, is that something that naturally happens or is that something that has to be worked at? And that these...
0: I think it's a virtue in people. I must say I'm prejudiced in favour of that kind of virtue. I've always liked uh, the notion that I mean, people can fall out, they can grow distant, they can move into different lives, they can vote for different political parties. But I love the idea that there, is a, there are essential connections between friends, say. Uh, as a, let's not talk at this point about family connection or romantic connection. That might bring its own particular, it does bring its own particular poetry and problem problematics. But in friendship, especially to reduce it again to male friendship, I think I've always been a fan of the notion that there are consistencies that can, as it were, overarch any of the difficulties and differences and distances that can come in life. I mean, there's a kind of idealism in that for me. I mean, I wrote about Soho recently in the LRB, and mm. I think threaded through that essay was a strong notion that knowing how to behave with your friends and knowing how to be a good friend to them over the years is a kind of an unexplored but nevertheless a proper a contentious virtue. I've always been quite proud of the fact that I'm still in touch with the friends I had when I was a teenager. And that wasn't a hard battle. That wasn't crawling over broken glass to maintain that at all. It, it was utterly natural to me. I love my friends and I want to grow with them. And in some cases, in very many cases, we are living very different lives now, but the connection unbreakable to me.
3: then the narrator, the, um, the Andrew O'Hagan character, if I may, yeah, in, in, in the... Uh, <laughs> novel travels a, a greater distance than any of his peers and it's implied that that's largely to do with the english teacher uh, mrs o'connor as she's yes. called um and something i really admired was how the sense of joy and excitement um with which you wrote about gigs in manchester hearing um the smiths uh play Exactly the same sense of excitement was brought to descriptions of after-school study sessions with Mrs O'Connor. <laughs> That's
0: I mean, how sad I am.
3: <laughs> did you have a Mrs O'Connor?
0: There was, indeed. Um, and she actually died the same year as my old friend who inspired the novel. I got a letter from her husband to tell me that um, that she had remembered our friendship, a friendship, as a pupil with this English teacher who, you know, in a comprehensive secondary school in the middle of a housing estate 25 miles outside Glasgow literally and figuratively kept the lights on for me to prepare me uh, for university. I mean, I came from a big family of boys. My three elder brothers hadn't stayed on at school. They got no qualifications. They didn't go to university. So the chance came for me to do that. It was mainly through her. And she literally stayed on late with me alone in the class going through Antony and Cleopatra and W.B. Yeats and Thomas Hardy's novels preparing me for uh, the hires, as we call them in Scotland, Mm -hmm. to get into university. That didn't come from my home life, that came from her. And 30-odd years later, you know, when she died, there was a tremendous upswelling for me of gratitude, but also of looking back, thinking, again, as I like the novel to be, it was about what one human being's existence does for another how it impacts on another and that can be romance it can be educational it can be to do with friendship or a financial relationship any number but it's always for me at the core of it and that woman was based on a woman who actually made a decision you know to not go home of an evening and have a supper and be with her husband and have a glass of wine but to sit in a classroom with a grubby you know 16 17 year old taking him through these authors and trying to light a fire under his life, mm. you know.
3: I just that literature was less important to the boys, to the group in general, yeah. than music and films. I mean, sure. they, they quote film constantly. I mean, is that um, in your life, in the formation of your sensibility, do you think music and film had the same impact or a greater impact?
0: Certainly it? as much when I was younger, I mean, I was very bookish and one of those sort of library haunting sados who couldn't get enough of reading and it was a kind of uh, even at the time i knew that it was my passport out and i don't mean to suggest that there's only one arrow in working class life and it is out mm. i know plenty of people including all my friends and including my brothers who didn't go out mm. in that way they still live in the area where we grew up by and large and you know have you know actually satisfying and sort of full lives but for me, and I can only speak about me and the character based on me in this novel, there was always a high fence to vault over. That was just my nature, you know. In so many writers' lives, if you look at them, you know, whether it be, you know, as it were, Dorothy Parker or, you know, um, you know, Thomas Hardy himself, you know, there's this urge to to remake your life and to start on your own terms again, somewhere else. There's always a Paris. There's always a New York. There's always a London. you know, And it's not that those places are, you know, deep with virtue or better than where you came from, but it's just that there's a kind of anonymity there mm-hmm. when you're starting out. And I came to London off the bus, you know, all those years ago, you know, fresh from that world of great friendship and very vivid experiences as a teenager, but into a kind of anonymity and started again. Some writers especially, I say writers, could be artists or it could just be individuals it's in your nature to do that it was in mine and it's in uh, James's this the, the narrator of the book has that I think probably from childhood
3: I feel that having addressed your I mean I think every novel you've written am I right about this other than math is partially at least set in the west of Scotland yeah do you feel that having addressed your own youth so directly in a novel you sort of come to the end of that road or will you continue to return to
0: this i mean interestingly it's not always my youth uh, that i feel moved to set in that landscape i mean i've set you know a novel like be near me is set in that landscape but it's a contemporary novel and the illuminations is, is set in that landscape too but you're right my childhood has come back also in the essays mm. you know that i'm not afraid to sort of divulge yet another absurd strand of childhood and i've always felt that one day i would write a series of memoir-based books i certainly will I mean, it's available to me and it is my material. So I don't run from it. I'm very happy that that's the case. But in answer to your question, I do feel that, two, I feel two things about the Ayrshire of my books. Uh, one is that I'll never leave it. That for me, it is, as it were, as Faulkner had his imagined county, you know, as, uh, you know, the New Jersey of Roth was, it's always there as a kind of uh, constant music. It's the It's the landscape of my imagination in a primary way. That doesn't mean to say I'll always set books or stories or essays there, but it will always come back, I think, in the way that it does in life, in the way that it does in my dreams. I mean, I always dream about Ayrshire. It's somehow, it's the fictive landscape for me. And although I could easily set one of these family dramas in Skegness or in, you know, uh, East Ham, you know, and I know London now as well as I knew the landscape probably better, in the landscape of my childhood. But something of the poetry of Robert Burns, something of the novels of that county, something of the language on the tongue is just eternally there for me. So I will always return to it. But also, you're quite right, there will be some time, I think, Again, I mean, it could be many years before I write a straightforward, uh, you know, as it were, memoiristic novel set in Ayrshire. I don't see that happening now for a long time because I've so been dominated by that feeling mm. for this book.
3: Because am I right in thinking that this? You are in fact at work on another novel.
0: Huge novel, yeah, for is... six years. I mean, or *Caledonian Road*, and it's a what Henry James once when somebody said, "What are you working on?" He said, "A huge, grotesque epic of London society." <laughs> I've decided to adopt that. <laughs> um, that's what I've been working on for a long time. Is as a novel about uh, the way we live now in contemporary Britain? And for six years, I've been sort of uh, researching in some sort of, you know slightly mad way in factories and uh, polo matches and in sort of royal courts and of um, industries looking for the story of the relationship between as it were, immigrants and rich people in London today and with all these grand changes in our society happening at the same time I've always been hopeful that I could write a big 19th century style novel and that's what I've been working on for a long time but I just paused in the middle of that To write Mayflies, I felt that it was urgent that I wrote that book now.
1: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC.
2: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
3: I think that the first question has come through. It says, Achille fan?
0: Killy? Uh, Yes, Kilmarnock Uh, football team. Oh, right. Um, I have to say that I have affection for Killy as our team because that was the local team, along with Air United, I have to say. So just to give a shout out to them as well. But I come from a Celtic loving family. I mean, there are people booing now silently beyond my earshot um, because, of course, as soon as you mention Glasgow Celtic, you need to immediately mention the equal uh, and wonderful opposites, Rangers FC, that I grew up on a west coast of Scotland family devoted to Celtic, and actually that immigrant Irish team in Glasgow fascinate me. You know, and my brothers are season ticket holders, so I need to um, doff my cap to Celtic first. But Kelly, great team, they were the local noise.
3: Um, it strikes me that football is doesn't play a part in the novel, but that is another area of sort of of working class. Um, um, achievement and ambition.
0: It's really interesting uh, that actually, that um, football was much bigger. These are what this answers that previous question too, Ed, about why fiction. I mean, in life, the boys were much more into football than they are in the book. Right. I mean, the central character, as people will discover in the novel, is described as an addict. There's a scene on a bus on the way to Manchester where they're having a hilarious, to me, conversation, very much drawn from the kind of things they would say, where they're arguing about you know, the best and the worst Scottish goals ever. Mm. And, you know, and whether uh, uh, the, the famous Archie Gemmell goal, goal against Holland in the World Cup gave rise to Thatcherism because there was a sort of nationalist moment coming from that goal. And the comedy of that was very much to do with football and their love of it. Um, Jimmy in the book can listen to that as I do and repeat it as I do, but it wasn't central to his you know, experience. I wasn't a football lover. Um, but if but in the course of the book, the freedom represented by football for working-class boys lives in the story right up to the very last sentence. Mm. And I, I think does, I, yeah. I had to sort of, beautiful. I had to bring that about.
3: A beautiful image that it ends on. That second, the second half of the novel, there's, I mean, as well as seeing, seeing all of the characters age and see all of the characters, as I said, sort of, you know, retaining some of who they were, but also having it diluted, there's a, there's a... <laughs> a lovely and horrifying line at one stage about um, they're all at the wedding and he said that some of them have forgotten how to hold pints <laughs> <anymore>. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, but there's, um I have noticed that, by the way, in men of a certain age that, yeah. you know, if they've, you know if they've been at home with the children for a long time and sort of, their social life is a kind of uh, nostalgic experience. <laughs> it's mm. something that they haven't been to a, a gig for years. And I went to a gig that... Um, in Glasgow while I was researching the book and I noticed a lot of middle-aged men standing with a pint glass of like balanced on the palm of their hand like that and I thought they haven't been out for a while (laughs) you know all that gripping of pints had gone, just things like that that sort of interest me you know just Mm. observations but um, I'm sure it's not true of every guy that age but it was a sort of it's the sort of um, thing I like to invite the reader's attention on to is how we, our habits and our um, obsessions change so much you're a guy who's been at home or a woman who's been at home with children for 15 or 20 years, then your sense of going into a damp, sweaty student hall somewhere in Sucky Hall Street mm. isn't all that, or perhaps for some people it is.
3: Hi, Andrew. Do you think that male friendships have been given short shrift in no- novels? It seems to me that as a society we're not great on expressing the value of male friendship, and this could potentially contribute to the rising concerns about male mental health. Who sent that in? We know? Jamie Mollart.
0: Yeah, that's a nice question. I mean, the I think this is a this is a weird moment for men um, and their a sense of themselves. I mean, it's quite rightly too, by the way. I mean, I'm not you know bleating about it, mm-hmm. um, but you know, one of the things that we haven't quite worked out how to do is uh, is pay attention to very necessary uh, demands for freedom without diminishing the freedom of others who are also there at the same time. And I think that, um, in some ways, it's quite an unfashionable subject, male friendship at the moment, Mm. with Me Too and everything. And as I say, I support Me Too, it's absolutely right. This moment is right for this. There's a reckoning, time's up, as they say, on patterns of male behaviour and assumptions. I mean, of course we agree with that. But what I wouldn't want to see is that male experience is suddenly found uninteresting as a result. Mm. No. Intellectual life is so fashionable in that way, you know, that suddenly um, the lives of billions of men or middle-aged men or white men is suddenly found uninteresting because there are other things to think about. I think a good liberal tolerant society should train itself to think about them all simultaneously Mm -hmm. and together and as a togetherness. Mm -hmm. That, as it were, addressing disequilibriums should be able to be done in a way that just doesn't create, as it were, new unfairnesses mm. i mean that's what i mean about um it's an unfashionable topic at the moment but um i'm not afraid of that i mean uh, it didn't halt me for one second in writing the novel i mean this this was about human beings and i found myself in a position to write that book i certainly wasn't going to you know make it a different more pleasing more politically correct book and populate it with uh, different sorts of characters, that would be cynical and indeed insulting. Mm. You know, that was the experience I chose to capture with this book. And I'm delighted, I would be delighted to read alternative versions of male behaviour and male togetherness, wherever they occur.
3: I think you've spoken previously about some uh, advice that Norman Mailer gave you, about how you must never be reduced to the kind of person who just has uh, the right opinions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely crucial for... Any writer, any professional writer who doesn't understand that is in the wrong game, Mm. that you're not in the business of selling your certainties to your readers. Your readers are too intelligent for that, by the way. I mean, I've had my moments of being upbraided for trying to be too objective or trying to give voice to the, the unpopular view and so on. Um, in some of my stories. I mean, I started my life at the London Review writing a story about how we should feel pity for the boys who had murdered James Bulger in Mm, Liverpool. mm. I made the argument that there were three victims in that case, the dead boy primarily, but also the two 10-year-old boys who did it. Mm. And I was met with huge uh, consternation in some quarters, especially in the right-wing press, Mm. because ambiguity or inclusiveness of that sort is often thought to be suspect. I mean, I grew up, as I think you probably did, with a certain amount of respect for Orwell's notion of opposing groupthink. But in journalism today, opposing groupthink can seem like an agenda Mm. to some people. And you can find yourself accused of all all manner of, uh, you know, evils just for simply trying to give your readers a sense of uh, the size of the argument, the size of the debate, and also the perspectives on the event. certainly that was true in the case of Grenfell but some people were absolutely delighted that somebody had finally tried to open the aperture and other people were absolutely horrified Mm. and you have to live with that as a writer it's your responsibility not as Norman Mela rightly said to just strike all the right notes and show everybody how right on you are I mean that's disgraceful I
3: think it makes it all the more important as a thing to do but also something which requires courage which of course in politically yeah, I mean, more stable times. Totally. You
0: and I have had students, Ed, and the idea of sending your students out into the world as potentially professional writers and saying, you know, just write all the pleasing things you can.
3: Yeah.
0: And you'll get a publisher and you'll get an agent and you'll get fans yeah. and people who like you on Twitter until they don't. Mm. You know, that would be a monstrous misdirection. I think, you know, old-fashioned as it might sound, I mean, I don't know that it's courageous. I think it's just professional. mm I, mean, well, I, I, I think it does it. take
3: courage to face the kind of, of crap that I've, you know, that you had after your Grenfell piece from some people. I think it does take courage to. I think you've face got to be ready for it time. and
0: ready not to be broken by it. Mm. I mean, they certainly had a perspective, um, but they didn't want me to have one. Those mm. people, and you know, they couldn't believe that I hadn't been, as it were, bought up by the right wing because simply because I'd given some airtime to the accused. Mm. But we live in a system, even if we're to have any basic belief in a justice system that we live under, that the accused must have their moment too. That's the fundamental of our legal system and our journalistic system, the right to reply. The Orange Review just simply followed a rather traditional ambition with that piece, which was to give uh, the complexity all the airtime it required. And it required 65,000 words, in my view, in the end. And there were many views being expressed. And actually, none of them very precisely. My view, you know, my view um, was kind of non-existent in the end. It was about trying to give a proper picture to people, and that's true, as true of the writing of a novel as of writing an essay or writing a haiku. I imagine mm-hmm. is don't uh, don't stack the case one way or the other. Um, it's not uh, it's not dignifying and uh, and it's not observant mm-hmm. about how your readers really ultimately require the freedom to make up their own mind.
3: I, I've never read a courageous haiku, but otherwise I'm with you all the way. <laughs>
0: the night is young. <laughs> yeah, the night is young. Uh,
3: we've got some more questions. Uh, Will Burt says, hi, Andrew. I'm from a working class area in Scotland as well. We were taught to be aspirational even in Thatcher's time. Our music of escape slash dreaming was rave. Do you think there is a lack of that type of aspiration now, or is it always how we feel looking back?
0: I don't think it's a matter of looking back. Again, a good question because it's sort of, I mean, we could do an hour on that. We don't have it. But, I mean, briefly, um, I mean, that rave culture, the, the, the question I was part of, was an enormous uplifting moment. For I was young enough to be part of that. I was only 20 in 1988 mm-hmm. when, you know, suddenly boys like us who'd been wearing sort of black denims and turn-ups and Doc Martens and sort of, you know, leather jackets suddenly were in raves, the music changed. we dropped the guitars or the guitars suddenly started becoming part of a Chicago house beat and we absolutely loved it and we participated in it, we took the drugs, we uh, bought into the new music and the new culture wildly and again that felt like a liberation that's the thing about popular culture that's worth the candle, is that people who don't really understand or pay attention to it think it's just kind of ephemeral youth culture that doesn't mean anything, but I think we might agree that in the last 40 years or so, or 50 years, pop has come front and center in people's experience of living. And a novel that defies that and pretends that high culture, you know, as it were, an understanding of the philosophical and the economic and the, 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 the high culture of um, the serious novel can't be polluted by rave culture or loving bands or... The camaraderie that can exist in a sweaty hall where thousands of boys are all and girls are rushing towards the stage i defy that mm. i mean it's 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 actually a, almost a a truth of the period i've lived through as a writer is that popular culture is now as important as anything so i think the questioner will find that as we speak there are teenagers planning their freedom plotting their weekend mm. plotting their character mm. based on what they're listening to the politics you know whether it be extinction rebellion, whether it be resisting the sort of grotesque you know operations of Facebook, whether it be you know looking at the government you know uh, who are supposed to be serving them and thinking they're more chaotic and more full of untruths than any government's ever been, and they will use their music and their culture to galvanize their feelings about that and move forward as a tribe. Mm-hmm. I'm all into it, and it's happening. So I don't think it's nostalgic at all. I think it's a persistent thing in human life.
3: Uh, We have a question from Julian Lewis, who asks, will lockdown be part of Andrew's great baggy 19th century novel on the way we live now?
0: Yes. Yes, it will. Because, I mean, we're now in a period where, you know, if you're going to be the kind of novelist who is trying to wrap her arms around the condition of Britain now, then the condition of Britain now has been possibly altered for a hundred years by Mm -hmm. what's happened uh with this pandemic Mm -hmm. you know not just looking at the economy but the education system there's a whole generation of young people who who their their attendance you know uh, their a-level results that's a generation you're talking about almost and that's that's been deeply affected by this but also i think it's really changed our sense of vulnerability as human beings I think our relationship to death and to vulnerability, to see young women and young men are perfectly healthy individuals being felled by this has brought us right up against something which the novel, if I may say, tries to deal in, which is the, the proximity of uh, that common disaster that we know as death. I think COVID is, has brought us right up against that. And in addition to that, our sense of community has been altered by it how we look after each other, how we support our in- industries. I mean, even supporting those restaurants through difficult times, that was unthinkable from mm-hmm. a Tory government only five years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, that suddenly Rishi Sunak sounds like uh, somebody who's, he sounds like somebody from, Santa. you know, Santa and yeah. New Labour, yeah. and somebody slightly even more to the left than that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's a momentous time. So any novel that's looking to depict the state of the nation, we need to look
3: at I just, I just, I just, We've just been talking about um, avoiding sort of bien poisson certainties. Is there not a parallel thing that makes you want to avoid topics that other novelists will be all over, or is there not? I mean, I just I, I just feel, I mean, I, I kind of dread the glut of lockdown novels that we're going to
0: get in. I'm with and, you on this. And the, the key word, I think, in your question there, Ed, is topics. If they're mm, topics, right. it's a mistake. If they're part of the fabric of everyday life, I mean, the word... The, I mean, as it were, COVID-19 as a a word or a phrase or whatever it is, might never be mentioned by me in a big novel. Mm -hmm. But as it were, the ether has been affected by it Mm -hmm. and how we move and how we, and how time was, people might talk about before 2020 and after 2020. In the novel, that might just be, have been inculcated by the characters at some level. So it's not a topic. You know, they shouldn't be sitting around the table talking about, you know, what it was like for them in lockdown necessarily. But somehow the novel will be, of it, in the sense that you know, um, I don't know uh, Victorian novelists' uh, books were often filled with, as it were, the fume of industrial change. You weren't sitting around in a pub discussing. I mean, sometimes, crudely in Dickens, you'll get somebody walking on, and or even in the Sainted George Eliot will have something about um, agrarian change or the reform act that will be sort of absolutely presented on the page. The Russians are always a bit less. Uh, nervous about that. They'll bring on political argument yeah. in the 19th century novel. Um, so I would avoid that, certainly, bringing topicality right. into it. I mean, there's so much topicality at the moment in British mm. life. I mean, Brexit, yeah, COVID, a everything. I mean, you could, be a you could absolutely you could wreck your novel with topicality mm. at the moment. So it's just a way of, as it is in life, you know, it's woven into the fabric of how people are experiencing time.
3: Uh, i think we've probably got time for two more questions um we've got one from scott hay who says hi andrew do you think that males are losing their male friendships in this isolation period in comparison to female friendships and how do you think this might affect all of our friendships when the catalyst of COVID conversation is gone
0: Going to be interesting that actually um i've been doing a little kind of study among um individuals about how their social life has been altered by this and all that, although it's a cliche to think that only men go to the pub. I mean, it's not the 1950s. And plenty of women go to the pub, and plenty of men go to the pub with women. It's you know, and uh, indeed, it's 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 the categories are endless. And be listened to, you know, how people define themselves and go out socially now and exist um, is is in a massive state of change. I don't I don't think that male experience will be harmed any more than women's. Although I do think that that idea of just being on the street and bumping into people and sort of hanging out, the hanging out thing has already changed. You see the way mm-hmm. people walk around you in the street now? Yeah. I was in the park today, and just sort of everybody's doing a kind of different way of relating to each other spatially. So it's hard to answer the questioner's question in terms of what will it mean to the specific, you know, to, male, to men in particular? I think that was already changing, to be honest. I mean, my father's way of relating to other men was just a universe away mm. from yours and mine. I mean, my father would never have gone to dinner with a man on his own. Mm. You know, I wouldn't hesitate, you know, but all of that, that's not just a class thing, it just wasn't, and he had no female friends. My father wasn't the most old-fashioned person in the world, but he was of his time. He met men in national service, you know, mm. and they were the men he sort of hung on to, and he met them in institutions, he wouldn't have gone to dinner with them mm. on his own, and he wouldn't have. He would have gone to the pub with them, or smoked with them, or you know talked about problems in a kind of very you know, fenced-off part of life. But I think I think it's already it's already over the idea of men being a sort of cabal on their own. Maybe football fans feel differently. Maybe sport is a world still where men go to be with men. I, I wouldn't know how to answer that.
3: No. Interesting. Well, the only sport that I know about is tennis, which is probably the most gender equal sport of all of them. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Last question from Madeline Murray, who says, Hi, Andrew, with so much senses of group belonging, music, football, even a sense of being lumped together, what do you think happens to male friendship uh, when these influences or structures change or fall away? Do you think it is different now compared to the time period of the novel?
0: It's definitely different uh, to the period of the first half of the novel, that's to say, 1986. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things I loved about my male friends is that they were always quite um, open in a way that not all the men then were. It's one of the things we had in common, not just the music and the films and everything, but they were quite camp and quite funny. about. It. They made camp jokes. They made... Uh, they made they were looser in their sexuality in a way, and I think of those guys as almost kind of harbingers of change. That they were because oh, none of our fathers were like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I wrote a book called Our Fathers. It was about the rigidity of those old mm-hmm. socialist, uh, you know, uh, those men who understood stood their role in economic and political and sexual terms as a kind of rigidity. Then my mates weren't like that. They were always sort of sending themselves up. They were theatrical, they were quite funny. I mean, I never felt like an exception among those guys. I'm talking to you now the way we all talked to each other then, mm. that there was a sort of openness, an irony, a theatricality, a pantomimic quality. You see it in the novel. Mm. They're endlessly quoting, um, sending each other up, sending themselves up. And that was so... My point is that that kind of old-fashioned masculinity was already under attack in my youth. And I've just watched it actually get better and better and better to the point where, um, you know, the idea of an absolute dyed-in-the-wool male chauvinist pig just walking through a pub and being applauded for being that is now not—it's not going to happen, mm. you know. And as I said before, I mean, as a father of a 16-year-old daughter, she would find that kind of person completely absurd.
3: Mm.
0: It's not that they don't exist in places they do, and there are cultures where there are still dominant, there are still unfairnesses and deep-seated endemic. Uh, you know injustices based around those fixed positions but they're much less fixed than they were And the novel sort of charts that in a way
3: thank you very much andrew because there's not
0: uh... it's been great fun
3: thanks for listening to find out more about london review bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events